after some back and forth on the phone, I discovered that he was drawn into a church that is outside of the basic Christian doctrine. There are some people that I, that I know who left their uh, very large and popular South Bay church to give their lives over to a religion that insists that they're Christian, but they deny that there is one triune God. That they deny that Jesus is God and that they deny that the forgiveness of sins is by grace alone without works, that Jesus is not enough. That's what they believe. They deny that Jesus rose and they deny that the gospel is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I, I have to ask myself, do they not know the false doctrine that this religion teaches? And why would they? Why? How does this happen? You, you might know someone in the same situation. How do people get swayed by false teaching? Well, we're continuing in our sermon series through the book of 2 Corinthians. And just as a point of review, we've been away from it through the holiday time. And as a point of review, that just to go back and recognize that the first century Corinth was a leading commercial center in southern Greece. It was a city that was known for its immorality and its paganism. In spite of this immoral culture, the Apostle Paul went and planted a Christian church there. And although the church was gifted and, and it was growing, it was plagued by a lot of problems. There were moral and ethical problems and <clears throat> doctrinal and practical problems. There were corporate and personal problems within the church. And Paul addressed these, all these issues in his first letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And in his second letter, what we're looking at today... Paul addresses the Corinthian church that has been infiltrated by false teaching. And the false teachers rallied the, the church people against Paul, claiming that he was prideful and un, unimpressive. They claimed that he was a poor speaker and, and that he was dishonest and unqualified to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul sent Titus to Corinth to deal with these issues, and then Titus comes back and reports to Paul that things are going well there, and most of the Corinthians have had a change of heart. And so Paul writes this letter, 2 Corinthians, the one that we're looking at today, to express his gratitude for this change of heart in the majority of the church, but uh, he's also appealing for those who refuse to accept his leadership. So let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 1. Let me read this to you. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I'm in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. But when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? Well, God knows I do. And I'll keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from those under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things that they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if this servants also, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. This is the word of God for us this morning. In the final chapters of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the most dangerous threat to a church the enemy has. It's, we'll call it infiltration. The destruction of the church from within by teachers who are veering from the truth. And that's what's happening here at Corinth, and that's what's threatening many churches today. In our text today, we're exploring the, how the Apostle Paul deals with false teachers in their midst. In verse 2 of chapter 11 in our text, Paul writes, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now, jealousy has, I think, been properly called the green-eyed monster, if you've ever heard of that before. Jealousy is, is an angry and strong and powerful emotion that refuses to tolerate a rival. It's one of the most frequent causes of broken homes and broken hearts and even broken bodies today. But amazingly, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, God declares, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And now, if jealousy is so bad, why, why is God jealous? And here, the Apostle Paul, we, we read that he says, I, have a, I feel a godly jealousy for these people. So to me, this indicates that jealousy can be both good and bad. There's a divine jealousy or a, or a false jealousy and a true jealousy or a godly jealousy. The false jealousy is always selfish, if you want to. It's the kind of jealousy that we think of on a day-to-day basis when we think of somebody or something. It's possessive, this false jealousy is. It's, it wants to control the other person. It's, it's often dominating and cruel. It sits on its own way. and It's imposed on someone else whether he or she likes it or not. 
That's false jealousy. Now there's a, we'll call it godly jealousy. On the other hand, Paul felt this for the Corinthians. It's, it arises from a deep passion from within of the welfare of another person. It thinks only of others, this godly jealousy does. And it's always manifested in some tenderness and thoughtfulness about someone else. So Paul likens his jealousy to that of a father who's given his blessing to his daughter to marry a young man. And from ancient days, fathers have had this privilege of, of giving their daughters away in marriage. It's a wonderful thing. But now Paul sees a threat to this. And as you look closely, you can see what fear is he's feeling here. In chapter 11, verse 3, it's, it's in your notes that's in your worship folder. In the New King James Version, I like this. He, he writes in verse 3, But I fear as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, take your pen and underline that last phrase, the simplicity that is in Christ. Because I think the first point we can make here on how to deal with false teachers is this. Number one, or the first one, is keep it simple. Let's just keep it simple. About 20 years ago in, in church circles, I don't know who came up with this. I tried to search who said this, but there was a phrase, uh, a, a turn of words that, that a lot of pastors, a lot of people use, and it, it went like this. The main thing about being a Christian is to see that the main thing remains the main thing. The, the main thing about being a Christian is to see that the main thing remains the main thing. It's, the main thing is at the heart and center of your life. It's, it's got to be about the simplicity that's in Christ. And when belief in God becomes complicated, it's always a sign that we're drifting away from the realities of the centralities of our faith. And as the complexities of our life increase, let's see to it that our minds are not corrupted in this way. Paul writes about this simplicity in his first letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2. He, he writes this, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And then he says this in verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He, he just lays it out there, very simple, very central. And apparently in Corinth, they were assaulted by these teachers who were exposing things that caught the Corinthian church's attention. And they were drifting from the central point of their faith. And they were learning about maybe fascinating um, philosophies which went off on sidetracks and took them down rabbit trails of faith. And they were maybe being tempted challenged with certain ego-appealing experiences, which, if they could only grasp, it would make them feel so great and so wonderful and so God-possessed. And it, it's just like people today who are invited to explore strange and wonderful Christian experiences which tend to move them away from the simplicity that's in Christ. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 4 of chapter 11, back to our text. He says, For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, 
or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. What he's saying is, if you take all this false teaching in without questioning, all the things these people are teaching you, shouldn't you much more listen to me who brought you these truths in the beginning? There's a a great theologian, a great mind, one of the greatest theologians, one, one of the greatest minds. His name is Karl Barth, and he, he wrote a, a text on Romans that was just, it, it, it really just changed things. And, and he was being interviewed one time, and in a, uh, the person interviewing asked him, uh, to Karl Barth, he said, what is the greatest theological thought that ever crossed your mind? Sort of like just wanting to know, what's the greatest theological thought that ever crossed your mind, Karl Barth? And they were expecting some complicated, some you know, incredible answer. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's, it's just that simple. It's so easy to lose that, though. You can lose it in the midst of your Christian activity, whatever that might be, your serving in ministry. You can get so involved in some fascinating aspect of Scripture that you could give your lifetime over to Bible study and still lose the simplicity that's in Christ. How does... Paul deal with this false teaching I, I think the first thing that we can take a look at is this it's, it's keep it simple that's how to deal with it now in verses 5 through 12 Paul uses something as a tactic to deal with this false teaching it's, we'll call it irony now irony is a gentle form of sarcasm and many people use sarcasm but the difference between sarcasm and irony is that sarcasm embarrasses another and irony doesn't. It, we all know what it means to be sarcastic. Many of you employ that uh, sarcasm. Uh, in, 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 in a way, sarcasm is appearing to agree with something. But obviously your tone and your attitude convey that you really don't agree. So sarcasm is an apparent agreement that really conveys a sharp disagreement. And it's usually designed to embarrass somebody or to hurt somebody in, in, the, in the worst forms. But irony is different. <clears throat> irony, on the other hand, acts the same way, in, in, in the same way. But it's not designed to hurt. It's designed to help. And so irony consists of plain back words to people in a way that helps them to hear those words in a different way. So they'll see how foolish they have been. It's not designed to hurt, though. Irony is designed to help. Take a look at verse 5 here in our text in chapter 11. Paul writes, I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. I think the second way that Paul is dealing with his false teaching through irony is he's saying we need to stay humble. It's not just keep it simple. But you need to stay humble, too. He's humbly saying, you know, those super apostles, they call me a poor speaker. And, and maybe they're right. He's just humbly stating that. I may not be a very good speaker, he says. But what's important is not style. It's the content. He says, look at what we've told you. 
What do these other guys know, these super apostles? They titillate your senses. They capture you with flowery words. But what do they know? As far as knowledge goes, the Apostle Paul was incredible. His writings have for centuries unveiled the truth that people have never thought of before and found in no other place except for the Word of God. Paul wrote Bible. That's how great he was. He tells us how life really is and therefore he speaks the truth to each one of us. And all who study the Word of God agree that there is no apostle. There is no apostle who writes more penetratingly, more perceptively, more aware of the nature of reality in human life than the Apostle Paul. His writings are expert studies on human psychology and basic sociology. In all the realities of life that we know him, Paul writes about because he has this vast knowledge that's been given to him. In a further use of irony, he deals with a charge here in our text that he didn't love the Corinthians enough to even let them support him financially. In verse 7 in our text, he says, Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you? And he uses this phrase, free of charge. Paul's saying this. He says, the real reason I did this is to show you how free the gospel of God is. He says, I wanted to demonstrate in my own life that the gospel is free of charge. And it's, it's, it's good news that God doesn't want to, he he's not asking for anything back from us to receive this good news. It, he offers it freely in Christ. And he didn't want to be a burden to anyone when he came to Corinth. From this, you can see Paul's principle of ministry and, and how he administrates that. He would never accept financial support to whom he was sharing the gospel with the first time. And the only ones he would accept any support from were those who he already led to Christ so that they could partner with him in the ministry of fulfilling the mission that God gave him. And in our increasingly complex and excellence-driven world, we need to remember to keep it simple and to stay humble and to resist the temptation to be drawn to popularity and personality of leaders out there. We need to focus on the substance, not the style. We need to be excellent communicators, those of us who are, who are preachers and teachers and communicating the good news. We need to use the resources that God has given us, but not to sacrifice substance over style. And therefore, Nova pastors and Nova leaders safeguard the use of the Bible that we examine carefully the teaching and the books and the curriculum and the videos that are used in NOVA classes. We take great pains to do that, that we examine the programs and materials that we use to teach our children and NOVA kids, that we focus on the scriptures with NOVA youth. And it goes for the same for men's and women's and small group and other ministries of NOVA, that we need to examine these things very carefully. And I'm so thankful for Nova people who are humble and wise and smart and educated and well-equipped and gifted to teach and lead and serve. To combat false teaching, we need to deal with false teaching. We need to 
keep it simple. Stay in the centralities of our faith. We need to stay humble. And the third is, we need to tell it like it is. If it's false, we need to say what it is. We need to tell it like it is. And Paul writes about this in verses 13 through 15. He says, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, and their end will be what their actions deserve. And with these words, Paul rips that band-aid off, right? I mean, he just, he strips the facade that these false teachers are trying to hide behind. And one reason why many churches are destroyed from within is because no one will stand up and tell the truth. And they won't tell it like it is. And we're so caught up in this world's philosophy. We're, we're, we're just drawn into this culture of that any, anything goes and that we have to be nice to everyone. And what's important is we need to be politically correct. Well, Jesus wasn't PC and neither was Paul. Paul says their end is inevitable. Their end will be what their actions deserve. In other words, they will fall victim to their own lies. And they will lose the ability to tell the truth from evil. And they will fall victim of their own errors. So we need to do this. We need to be willing to ask questions and enter into dialogue. We, we, need, to, we need to ask our pastors, our leaders, about things and have questions and, and be willing to be open about uh, recommendations on the doctrines and theology and the practice of pastors here and, and elsewhere, and of books that you're reading, authors, Christian authors, and of teachers, and you listen to podcasts or watch podcasts, and maybe you even watch religious TV shows, you need to examine those things. You need to ask questions. We need to enter in a dialogue over these things. But I think what God is saying to us in this text is the way... is that the way to avoid being trapped in a world that's filled with delusion today is simply this. It's to walk humbly with our God in the simplicity that's in Christ. I wanted to end today just as we begin this new year. This new year is filled with hope, it's filled with promise, it's filled with anticipation, but let's stick with some what I would call simple essentials. And the first one is this, just to remind many of you and that we would have it written down, that we would stick to these, is, is the first one is this, that God and his word are trustworthy. That God and his word are trustworthy. This is our hope to stay on track, to stay on track with the word of God. And many of you, in the beginning of, year, of the year, you've, you've said, I'm going to do a Bible reading plan, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. How many of you have ever saying, I'm, I'm going to do that? Enough. That's good. That's good. And, I, and I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I started on, on the new year, and, and I'm reading through an app on my, on my phone and on my iPad. And I thought, um, I'm just going to tweet it every once in a while, twice a week or so. Hey, I'm on this day. I'm, I'm on track and that sort of a thing. And I, I just didn't know. I just decided to, to, to do that. And uh, I got a Facebook message from a friend that um, I knew in high school. Uh, my wife, Janet, uh, has known this person uh, 
in elementary school and all through high school. And, uh, and she messaged me and said, you know, I was raised Christian. And I've never read the Bible. And, uh, and I saw your Facebook post, and I'm joining you. And then I saw her at the gym. I haven't seen her in 20 years. And she says, I'm doing that. We're, we're doing that thing together, that we're reading the Bible. And she tells me, it, it was uh, January 6th, and she says, I'm on day eight. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, you really don't get it. It's a, uh, it's a, uh... no, I didn't say that. She said, she said, I didn't want to fall behind. So I, I'm, I'm reading ahead. And I just thought to myself, isn't, I just, you know, just wanted to encourage others who were doing it. Just tweeted a little, hey, I'm on day six. I'm, you know, I'm following the whole thing. And she, here's someone who doesn't attend church. And so I'm thinking to myself, if this person who doesn't attend church can do this, couldn't my church family all say, let's stick with the idea that God and his word are trustworthy. Let's, let's be guided by his word. Second thing is this. That the simple essential is, is that number two is Jesus is Savior and King. How important that is to stick in, on, on that simplicity that Jesus is Savior and King. My dad is 91 years old. I got to spend a lot of time with him on sabbatical. And, and um, frankly, his, his health is failing. I don't know how much longer he's going to be with us. And I wanted to make sure about his, his life, his eternal life. And so a, a few weeks ago, I, I just decided I'm just going to talk frankly with him. In our family, and in our culture, it's not something that you just, you just, it's not a topic of everyday conversation. Um, and so I, I went up to his office and he was on his computer and, and uh, his, health is not, his health is not feeling that much that he can't be on his computer. And, but I, I'm, I'm wondering how long he'll be with us. And so I said, hey, Dad, you know, um, um, he was showing me um, all the papers, all the final arrangements he has. He's got everything in this box. Under, you know. Anyways, he's just a great, great guy in that way. He's got everything all taken care of. When I die, just it's all here. And I said, hey, Dad, I said, you know, when I've, I'm going to be officiating your memorial service, and, um, and we, you know, we don't talk like this uh, in our family. I don't know if you do. We, we don't. But, so this was a big deal. And I said, I, I want to stand up before everyone and I want to be confident. I want to be able to say that you're in heaven. I said, Dad, are you going to be in heaven? He said, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And he had comments about that. And I said, okay. I said, let's, let's just make sure. I said, and this is a conversation over three or four days now. And you know, with dealing with someone who's 91 years old and doesn't hear real well and is um, pretty sharp, but still, you know, you've got to keep it really simple. You can't get into the philosophies of Jesus and the atonement and, you know, all of... I said, Dad, do you believe in Jesus? That he sacrificed his life, died on the cross for you and the forgiveness of sins for you and the whole world. Do you believe that he's God, that he died on the cross and that he was raised and he proved he was God because of that? He said, yeah. Keep it simple. 
The third simple essential is this. With Jesus, there's hope for the future and there's forgiveness for the past. How thankful we are for this. And the last is, the fourth simple essential is the mission of the church is to multiply disciples. That's our mission. That there's nothing else that, that counts. And so through this, we say we support missionary partners worldwide. We support them financially. We support them spiritually. We pray for them. We, we support them relationally. We send them letters. We engage in their mission with them. We receive supplies and send them to Deborah House. We, it, it, we, this is what we do. But it's not just uh, worldwide. It's, we connect with people that God has put in our lives that are far from God with family and friends and neighbors and workplace and classrooms and all of that. And we share one through three, the first three essentials with them. That's what we do with our life and our actions and our words. We do this. And we support the ministry of our church family. We serve together. We worship together. We come together and we worship and we we pray for one another. We encourage one another. We get smaller. We go to small groups. We go to classes. We have ministry teams that we serve in. And we do outreach together. We feed the hungry. We do the laundry for the poor. We build houses that go to Mexico. We do VBS and we reach out to our neighborhoods. These are the simple essentials. This is what keeps us from getting our ears tickled with strange, mysterious, false teaching. And Paul says to keep it simple, to stay humble and tell it like it is. And for us, we walk humbly with our God every day in the simplicity that's in Christ. Amen? Let's all stand for the benediction. As you go this morning, in the early days of 2014, may you grow in the richness of God's grace. And may you be surrounded by his everlasting love. May you focus on the Savior in him crucified. And may you be a people that seeks the simplicity that's in Christ.